0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines.
1: The U.S. House of Representatives has approved the Respect for Marriage Act. The legislation protects gay and interracial marriages at a federal level, which could be in jeopardy from the U.S. Supreme Court. Wisconsin Congressman Mark Pocan co-sponsored the bill. Today, he spoke before the House to champion the bill to his colleagues. The House passed a previous version of the bill in July, but they needed to pass a revision of the bill this time around after the U.S. Senate approved a similar bill in late November. Another member of Wisconsin's congressional delegation, U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, was the lead organizer to pass the legislation in the Senate. The bill now heads to President Biden's desk, who is expected to sign it into law.
0: Enrollment in the Wisconsin Tech College's grew by more than 10% this past school year, an increase of 25,000 students. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that this follows a 13% decrease in admissions during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nationally, public two-year college enrollment has decreased by 9% since the fall of 2020. The, the biggest increases were by Nicolay. Area Technical College in Rhinelander and Western Technical College in La Crosse with a jump of 21 and 19 percent respectively. The president of the Wisconsin Technical College system credited the influx of efforts to increase flexibility for students.
1: The average household income in Dane County grew by 7 percent over the past five years. However, disparities still exists between white households and black and Latino households, according to a new snapshot published by the U.S. Census Bureau. The average annual income for white households was $82,000, while black households saw an average annual income of just under $40,000, and the median income for Latino households was around $54,000 a year. Still, people of color saw more growth in income than white households. Statewide communities in northern Wisconsin saw the largest growth in average household income. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that around 10% of Dane County households earn around $200,000 a year, while 10% live in poverty.
0: The American Medical Association and Wisconsin Medical Society are both urging the state Supreme Court to listen to doctors and decide against compelling non-evidence-based medical treatment. The two associations that represent doctors filed a brief in a court case before the court that asks whether a Waukesha hospital should have been forced to give an ivermectin treatment for COVID-19. Ivermectin has not been shown to be an effective treatment for COVID, according to scientists, doctors, and groups like the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. AMA President Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld told Wisconsin Public Radio that the ruling is not only relevant to COVID, but also to instances of, quote, substandard care that's not evidence-based, unquote. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is expected to rule on the case next year.
1: The The union presenting American Red Cross workers in Wisconsin is planning to strike during the holiday blood drive in Madison later this month. According to Channel 3000, the union is protesting unfair labor practices and the Red Cross's refusal to, quote, negotiate in good faith. The Red Cross and its employees have been negotiating a collective bargaining agreement since August 2021. In that time, the union has filed three unfair labor practice charges. In a press release, the Red Cross says they have offered wage increases, health care benefits, and paid family leave benefits. If an agreement is not reached in one week, laborers plan to strike outside the Alliant Energy Center on Friday, December
2: 23rd.
0: And today, the Madison Reading Project is celebrating giving away its 100,000th book this year. The nonprofit provides free children's books to families across Dane County. The group isn't stopping at 100,000 books. Later this month, they plan to bring more than 10,000 books to the Empty Stocking Club toy distribution event, which gives new toys and gifts to families in need. And what was book number 100,000? That would be Amira and Hamza, The War to Save the Worlds by Samira Ahmed. And it's packed up and headed to the Boys and Girls Club. And now on to today's top stories.
1: It's been over a decade since officials considered bringing passenger rail to Madison. But last night, excited residents heard from city transportation staff and Amtrak officials about the new plans to restart the process of bringing passenger rail to Madison and beyond. WRT producer Nate WikiHout has more. A passenger train hasn't been seen in
3: Madison since 1961, when the last Northwestern Railway train left for the city of Chicago. In more recent history, a high-speed rail line between Madison and Milwaukee was set to kick off in 2010, until former Republican Governor Scott Walker nixed the plan after a decade of work. The plans to bring a passenger rail to Madison was dormant until last year, when Amtrak released a nationwide plan for expansion. That plan listed Madison as a critical point on the rail network's Hiawatha line, which connects Chicago to Milwaukee. Amtrak is a quasi-public corporation, meaning that while they are privately managed, they receive state and federal funding for their projects. That plan, coupled with the passage of the Federal Infrastructure Bill, which included $66 billion for passenger rail improvements and expansion, reignited the plan to bring passenger rail to Madison. Just under a 100 people met in the Madison Municipal Building last night to share their excitement and concerns over building an Amtrak passenger rail station in Madison. The in-person meeting, coupled with a virtual meeting that drew over 300 people, was the beginning of the planning stage on where to build the station. At the meeting, city and Amtrak officials asked the public to submit their thoughts on which of the six potential sites would be best for a station. City and Amtrak officials have narrowed it down to six locations across the city that could fit a passenger rail station, each with their own pros and cons. Those locations are the former Oscar Mayer plant, downtown near Monona Terrace, by the Dane County Regional Airport, near the UW campus, on First Street near the Future Public Market, and on Fair Oaks Avenue by the existing rail tracks. Carolyn Sebo is a consultant with HNTB, the firm hired to help determine the best location. She says that the initial six areas identified for a potential station are not exact locations.
4: Those are broad areas that we want to initially screen at a higher level so that we can start to narrow some of the areas that we're looking at in the city of Madison and then start to look at some more specific site location Um, alternatives for the City of Madison. So actually looking at where would the platform be placed and the other inner city passenger rail facilities.
3: The city will study these locations along with the public's comments over the next few months to narrow it down to just two or three and make a final decision by April of next year. There are several important things to take into account in deciding the best site for a station, such as room for a 700-foot-long platform, proximity to public transport, and pedestrian access. But as Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway reminds everyone, the final location must be feasible for the ones actually providing the trains.
4: I want to say that I know there are some very strong feelings out there about where a station should be, but at the end of the day we have to pick a station location that works for Amtrak and that works for the Federal Railroad Administration. And we cannot identify a station that is not going to work for them um, or that would jeopardize our ability to get into the corridor development program.
3: Building a station is just the first step in the process, says Philip Gritzmacher, Madison's transportation planner, because building the station does not guarantee passenger rail coming to Madison. That, Gritzmacher says, is up to the federal government.
2: So there's a really big piece of that, and that is the corridor identification program. So that's going to open up this month, and that's kind of the the key to everything. That program is how we get federal funding. So what we're doing tonight, all of the, the work that we're doing, really helps us progress towards that. We want to demonstrate to the federal government that we are serious about wanting passenger rail in Madison, and identifying a station location is, is a good way to get there.
3: Some members of the public last night listed concerns about equity, the environmental impact, and use of fences at the potential station, but most in attendance at last night's meeting were excited to see passenger rail come to Madison. That includes District A older Juliana Bennett, who says that she's surprised Madison doesn't already have a rail. Do you like the idea of a train coming here to to Madison?
5: Heck yeah, we need a train. I don't know why it's really frustrating that Republicans hate trains
3: for no reason. Um, But we really need a train that comes to Madison. It's ridiculous at this point that we don't have one. The city will hold two more public information meetings on the location of a rail study. You can find more information about the rail station study and where you can send your comments on the transportation page of the city of Madison's website. Meanwhile, former Governor Scott Walker took to Twitter to give his thoughts on the project last night, saying, quote, this is a stupid idea. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wigge
0: Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's the Community Alternative Response Emergency Services van, and it's celebrating its one-year anniversary. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story.
2: Cruising the streets of Madison is an ordinary gray SUV with a small white logo on an extraordinary mission. It belongs to the Community Alternative Response Emergency Services, or CARES, program, which was launched in September of last year with the goal of improving care and response to people experiencing behavioral health emergencies. This nondescript emergency vehicle allows emergency workers to de-escalate nonviolent behavioral crises without the stresses of sirens and flashing lights. Yesterday evening, CARES hosted a virtual presentation discussing the results of their efforts so far.
6: Um, The data that you're about to see is from our first year of service. So it's from September 1st of 2021 to August 30th of 22.
2: The program started out as an intentionally small pilot program in downtown Madison in September of 2021. It was modeled off of similar programs to provide emergency mental health services such as STAR in Colorado and CAHOOTS in Oregon, though it is still a rarity among emergency services nationwide. Earlier this year, CARES services expanded to cover the south and west sides of Madison. Madison's current mayor, Satya Rhodes-Conway, says that she plans to expand the CARES program again next year. Over their first year in service, the CARES team has responded to hundreds of calls reporting nonviolent behavioral crises such as suicidal thoughts and depression. Teams of community paramedics and crisis workers take the time to de-escalate these emergencies and provide patients with care that police or medical services are not trained to deal with. This has allowed police officers and paramedics to shift their focus and resources to emergencies, which they are better trained to handle.
6: Care's responded to 935 total calls for service with each response averaging about an hour. And we made contact with 724 different individuals among the 935 calls. Um, Care's responded to 57% of the estimated number of mental health calls and 9% of the daily average of check welfare calls that occurred in Madison during the time that we were in service.
2: That's Shay Stedman, Assistant Chief of the Fire Department of Madison and one of the key people involved in the CARES project. With the current rate of success of the program, Stedman says that their next goal is to expand the hours that CARES is available.
6: The mayor's executive budget included um, for 2023 one more crisis worker and one more community paramedic so that we can open up weekend hours.
2: Stedman says that their goal is to have three teams of 24-7 responders by October of 2023. For those who need more assistance than CARES can offer, Sarah Hendrick from Journey Mental Health describes how CARES transfers patients to other emergency services.
4: Also in 3% of cases, um, patients have been transferred to um, a law enforcement agency, typically Madison Police Department. Um, And those cases have, have primarily involved incidents of individuals who are in an acute behavioral health crisis and need a higher level of care and are not willing or safely able to access that care via a, a CARES team transport. And so police are called in to prote- uh, place them in protective custody um, to get them to the care that they need.
2: When this happens, Hendrick says that CARES is often a better first point of contact than other emergency services.
4: You know, well-trained and, um, and empathetic police officer is still a uniformed armed police officer with driving a squad car, which may not be um, the most appropriate or least traumatizing way to get that patient to the care that they need.
2: Hendrick says that despite the successes of the program, they're still figuring out the whole workflow.
4: The 911 center um, software or or electronic record does not have the capacity to just mark calls as um, CARES appropriate, not CARES appropriate. And so we kind of have to extrapolate from the data that we have available to us.
2: CARES does not currently have their own phone number. 911 will dispatch a CARES team if the situation is deemed appropriate or if the caller requests a CARES team. While other programs such as STAR or CAHOOTS have faced issues with 911 operator discretion, CARES is seeing their bottleneck in the limit of how many teams they have and what hours they are currently operating with. Patients who use CARES are not billed for their services. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley.
1: Last month, District 2 Alder, Patrick Heck, announced that he won't be seeking re-election this spring. Heck is one of five Madison Alders who have announced they won't be running for re-election. In some cases, redistricting caused some Alders to no longer live in the district they represent. Earlier today, Alder Heck spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggehout to review his years in office and what the future holds for the Alder.
3: Alrighty, Patrick. So you've been sitting as an alder in District 2 since uh, 2019. And as you've previously announced, you will not be running for re-election in the spring here. So just starting things off, why did you choose uh, not to run for re-election here?
7: Well, uh, you know, redistricting had some influence on my decision. I don't live in District 2 any longer, so um, I, I wasn't interested in moving so uh, running in, in District 2 uh, was not really an option for me, but I certainly could have chosen to run in District 6, in which I live, uh, and that new District 6 includes primarily the Tenny Lapham neighborhood that I live in and, and Marquette uh, neighborhood, and uh, after thinking it through, I decided I would uh, rather focus on other things and also uh, let some, hopefully, uh fresh and new and exciting candidate step forward.
3: Now, looking back at your time on the council, so like I said, you've been there since 2019 uh, during some pretty important times here in the city of Madison. You know, the, the, you had the Black Lives Matter protests back in 2020. Uh, you had the uh, BRT debates that happened last year. Uh, so l- looking back at your time, what would you say was your proudest moment on the council? What was one thing that you sort of look back on and feel the most proud that you and the city were, were able to accomplish together?
7: Um, I, I think uh, some of the things I'm most proud of are related to our housing shortage and um, I, I feel like that uh, not just me but uh, a group of, of a fair number of alders as well as uh, the mayor and city staff have worked on a multitude of ordinance changes and funding streams for affordable housing and have done just, uh, I think, a tremendous job in, in moving forward with, with addressing our housing crisis. We, we still have a lot to do, but uh, given the circumstances, uh, I think we've done quite well. Um, those circumstances include our regressive state legislature, uh, the, the pandemic, uh, everything else that's been going on that you referenced. So uh, I, I think everything that we've done with respect to housing.
3: And if you uh, follow uh, Alder Heck's Alder blog, uh, which he uh, releases every week, you know that yes, you know, I say housing is uh, there's always an update on all the housing development projects that are happening in in District Two. There, well, looking looking at those developments, you know, over the last several years, are there any in particular that really really sort of stand out to you for a, one reason or another? Maybe they were uh, uh, particularly. Uh, uh, controversial or contentious or ones that really stuck out as really really helping the city in some specific way?
7: Um, well, uh, in, in terms of controversy, I'd say all of them are controversial in somebody's mind. And, <laughs> uh, you know, given that we have uh, a lot of folks in Madison who like to be involved in what happens in their neighborhood, there's, there seems to always be controversy. And, uh, you know, generally, I think most folks agree that uh, Development proposals improve due to neighborhood engagement, and I'd agree with that. So, the controversy sometimes results in much better projects. But uh, actually, uh, uh, one of the projects I'm most excited about has not been uh, approved yet, and that's the redevelopment of St. John's Lutheran Church on East Washington. And that's going to be almost all uh, true affordable housing, and nine floors of it above their redeveloped church, and and it's right there on East Washington along the the future BRT route. So, um I I think working with them really I think over the last 3 or 4 years when they just first started to to formulate some ideas and wonder what they could do to serve both their congregation and the community uh was was really a a high point for me.
3: Now, looking at the flip side of the coin there, is there anything that you feel like you sort of left on the table in your time as Alder? Is there anything that you really didn't quite get to in your time uh, that maybe you want the next council to look at?
7: Um, Well, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of of, uh, uh, hopefully passing the Transit Oriented Development Ordinance. And uh, th- that's a whole suite of zoning changes, but uh, that that we're going to deal with in January. So hopefully that will that will be finished. But um, I think some of the things that we could continue to do more on are related to sustainability and 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 uh, incentivizing uh, the uh, green infrastructure related to development and also. Uh, expanding our, our programs for um, increasing energy efficiency and building efficiency in new and existing uh, residences and commercial buildings.
3: Now, looking forward a little bit, you know, you've been older for a few years now. From, so from your perspective, what, what do you think will be the biggest challenges the city will have to face in, in the next couple of years?
7: Well, uh, you know, despite uh, all the, the past concern about our budget shortfalls, uh, I, I think that we really are going to have some serious budget problems in two years. Uh, things can always change, as they often had. Uh, it, you know, we had a huge influx of federal funding due to pandemic relief, but um that's going to be over and the city continues to grow the state legislature continues to not fund municipalities uh, 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 in in any way shape or form is 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 what we get from the state appropriate and i do think we're going to have a huge budget deficit to deal with in a couple of
8: years
3: now patrick bringing things back around to you what's what's on the horizon now what are what are your next plans well, I'm
7: going to uh, refocus uh, somewhat on my uh, my real job that pays the bills. and uh, but I also uh, feel like I'll stay involved in city matters as I can. I don't plan on running for another office, but I do feel like I have uh, quite a bit of knowledge about uh, housing, zoning, even transit that I would like to continue to share somehow.
3: Well, Patrick, just to close things out here, do you have just any final thoughts for the, uh, people of Madison and the the people of your district, uh, things that you want them to know?
7: Um, I, I will say, uh, that I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, serving both the old district two and the redistricted district two, the new district two. Uh, I got to know so many hundreds of, of people and, uh, It was really a pleasure to represent them on city council.
3: I've been talking with Patrick Heck, Alder of District 2, who will not be running for re-election in the coming spring here. Patrick, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thank you.
1: The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us.
0: Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenek, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open government issues. This week on Transparency Talk, they examine a little-known policy that allows members of Wisconsin's powerful Joint Finance Committee to anonymously object to certain items of business, essentially blocking the measures without taking a formal public vote. Now, a quick note that this conversation is not specific, specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. <coughs>
5: Can see now
9: the rain is gone. All right, it's Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? John, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing pretty great too, Tom. Uh, you know, we're back from a brief Thanksgiving break. Uh, we got an interesting topic today, you know, as we do every week. Uh, This one was actually sort of submitted by WRT's news director, Shali Pittman. Uh, So for those who don't know, the Wisconsin State Legislature will be coming back into session in 2023 after a bit of a long break. And Shali wants to know more about a special sort of exemption. I don't know if it's a proper exemption, but essentially the Joint Finance Committee, which is a very powerful committee in Wisconsin State Legislature, is allowed to essentially enter anonymous objections to certain measures, or at least that's how it's framed in things like the media, you know, by Democrats who don't have control of the of the committee itself. And Charlie wants to know, and I want to know, is that out of the ordinary? So, Tom, talk to me a little bit more about this sort of exemption or if it even is an exemption. Is this just an issue of framing?
10: I think it's more how the question is framed, because there's, there's nothing particularly written into the law that says any. JFC member may make an objection without putting their name on the record. When you dig down into what's going on, it's really just inaction. It's deciding not to do something and not to bring up something for a vote, not to consider a particular bill or a particular a particular administrative regulation that's being proposed. So it's it's essentially people deciding not to take action and this operates as a governmental body its meetings are open to the public but when something doesn't happen in the meeting they don't have to all vote not to have that something happen right it just doesn't happen it's it's actually typically decisions by the the leadership of the committee or or the city council or whatever it is about deciding we're just not going to put this on our agenda and sometimes the leadership the chair of the committee or the president of the board has the power to do that, can kind of pocket veto something just by never putting it on. The board itself, if it didn't like that action, could probably force it to be discussed, force it to be put on an, an agenda. But, you know, here we're just talking about kind of how politics works, that the people in charge of these committees have as much power over their proceedings as uh, as the, the, the members are willing to put up with, right?
9: So this is more an issue of... Um... Prioritizing what the committee is going to do as opposed to, you know, a secret clandestine objection, basically. If I were to simmer down what you just said.
10: That's a generous interpretation <laughs> of it. I still think it's clandestine, uh-huh. but it's not something that would violate transparency laws or or, or even needs something to, to particularly approve of this kind of behavior. Because it's just not doing anything you don't need special privilege to decide not to do something it's a little a little strange just somebody behind the scenes is talking to the jfc chair and saying you know i want this spiked and i don't want this to come up i don't want to have to take a public vote on it and that's that's certainly bad governance it's not illegal it's not uncommon but it, that's typically what's going on here. Hmm, interesting. So there's, you know, this is the records law, right? You, there might be a record with this person's name on it, but these people have been doing this for a long time. I, I'm guessing they're often smart enough not to put that name down in writing somewhere. It's just a verbal request. There's no written record. So there's no record to turn over. And you can't force your government representatives or officials to answer your questions about who was that guy or girl who. Who made that request? You can ask it, but you can't really force them to answer outside of just using the normal political processes of trying to hold them accountable at the ballot box.
9: Got it. So this is a case of like more inaction than anything else, but I guess looking more broadly, calculated inaction. Calculated inaction. That's a great term for it. Calculated inaction. Uh, But looking more broadly, are there scenarios in which government bodies can take? for lack of a better term, a secret vote. You know, I know occasionally uh, boards and committees can go into executive session where they sort of meet privately, or obviously there's caucusing in the Wisconsin State Legislature, which isn't really open to the public. But are there scenarios where they can take a vote that would affect the public and essentially that vote, who voted what way is shielded, or is that a non-starter basically?
10: So to start with the caucuses, those are expressly exempted from the meetings law. By, by the statute that the legislature wrote for themselves, the legislative caucuses don't have to meet publicly. They, they get to ha- have the brandy and cigars in the back room all they want. For other governmental bodies around the state, so your local school boards and county boards and city councils and whatnot, it's a gray area right now because before the modern open meetings law was written, the Supreme Court held that votes could be uh, made in closed sessions. If you're already in closed session for a valid reason, you could take a vote on that topic if you needed to. Now, fast forward to modern times, the language in the law changes to say, all action must be in an open session unless it's specifically exempted in this kind of laundry list of things they can do. And all of the language in those exemptions read like, discuss such and such and such, consider such and such and such. None of them actually say, vote on or decide things. So the Attorney General has taken the position, and it's one that I agree with, that after that change in the law, voting in closed session is almost never appropriate. There would have to be a reason why the vote itself needed to be secret. So the reason for secrecy for protecting the discussion also applies to the, the vote that's taken. One example might be if you're authorizing settlement negotiations with an employee or with uh, an adverse party in a lawsuit, and you want to approve settling for paying up to, say, $40,000, but you want to make an offer that starts at $20,000, You know, if you have to publicly vote that you're willing to pay $40,000, that kind of defeats the whole purpose of the negotiation anyway. So that something like that might be allowed.
9: Well, this has been a really interesting discussion, Tom, but we've run up on our time for the day. Uh, I've been joined, as always, on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenek, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks so much for joining me this week.
1: Always a pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Well, it's certainly starting to feel like winter here in Madison. Still, most of Madison lakes haven't frozen over quite yet. Couple that with cold temperatures, and that means this is the worst time of year for fisher folks. The ice isn't qu- quite ready for ice fishing, and the shorelines are too cold for shore fishing. Still, some of people are making their way out to see what they can catch. Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg break down the action on this week's Fishy Business.
3: Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been a little bit chilly here the last few days, so let's just start off. How, how have the fish been biting?
8: Well, the fishing's been pretty good for the folks that are making it out. The problem is is that, uh, you know, we we don't have any ice, so folks aren't really doing much ice fishing, and it's like you said, it's just cold enough that people aren't doing a lot of shore fishing. So, to be honest, the reports coming into the shop here have been... Uh, you know, few and far between, I guess you could say, but uh, the folks that I do hear from are, are doing pretty well still.
3: Well, you mentioned the ice, so let's start off there. Uh, is, is there really any ice anywhere yet that for people to go out and uh, ice fish on?
8: Well, there's Cherokee Marsh up here on the north side, and there is ice out there, but uh, as, a, as a shop owner, I'm, I'm officially not recommending that folks go out there just yet. Um, it's sketchy at best. There's two to maybe three inches, but more like two inches, and um, open water in, in areas. So unless you're very familiar with the conditions in the area, I would uh, just stay away until we get a little cooler weather here. But uh, other other than that, um, the only other spot I know of where there's ice is down near Stoughton. At, uh, Viking, Viking Park is a dog park down there. They have a place called, they call the ditches. But uh, other than that, that's that's all I know of for ice locally.
3: And just remember what we talked about last week. Check the ice before you go over there, and uh, yeah, don't fall in. We know what nobody wants that. Uh, so exactly. you you mentioned not too many people out shore fishing out at the moment, um, probably because it has been uh, pretty cold the last uh, few days. But for the uh, people that are catching stuff, where where are they finding stuff?
8: Well, besides the ice anglers, we've got people getting fish um, on Lake Mendota along the University shoreline. Uh, Tenney Park breakwall has been good for walleyes. And uh, the Warner Park breakwall, they've been getting some fish out there, too. Um, Lake Monona, they've been getting some walleyes along the city shoreline. Uh, Most of the walleye action on both lakes has been coming at night. Um, the musky anglers are still uh, getting out and, and having some good success out there. Uh, problem with both the lakes, too, is that uh, boat launches aren't in anymore. So it's a little tricky to get a boat out, but uh, the folks that are making it out are doing pretty well.
3: It's the real fisherman's folly. The, the best time to go out and uh, catch fish are the times that nobody really wants to go out to fish, which is uh, cold weather and at night. Uh, so yeah, sure. uh, looking, at, looking at some of the uh, area rivers, have you heard anything about there?
8: Well, uh, up to the Wisconsin River at the Prairie du Sac Dam, I've been hearing about some good walleye and sauger coming out of there. Um, So there's that. Uh, The the muskie anglers up there are are still getting some fish. I haven't heard much um, out of any of the uh, spots on the Ahara River. Uh, The Rock River, I have heard about um, some walleyes congregating in deeper holes between, uh, well, Lake Koshkanong and then all the way up to the Jefferson Dam, up and down that stretch of river has had... uh, some good action there for some walleyes but uh other than that i haven't heard too much
3: well like you said pat not too much happening uh this week out there on the water so just uh wrapping things up i guess do you have just any uh advice out there for people to to get ready for ice fishing because it is just around the corner here maybe uh maybe another month everything will be frozen over uh maybe even sooner than that so uh, and for people just wanting to get ready what what do you recommend for people
8: well, of course you can call the shop here anytime and, and we're happy to update people with any, any reports. But, um, you know, just, uh, like I said, try to monitor conditions. If you see folks out, uh, kind of watch where they're fishing, watch where they're walking on. Um, and then if you do make it out, try to check the conditions of the ice as you go. And, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, definitely by, I would think by the end of the month, we should have some good ice all around town here. So it's not far off.
3: Well, I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. If you want to hear an updated fishing report, maybe hear how the ice is doing, you can call uh, one number, easy to remember, anytime you want. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks for talking with me. Good luck out there, and remember, to stay, you know, check the ice before you go out there.
8: That's right. Thanks so much, Nate.
0: The Evergleam Aluminum Christmas Tree was a product made in the original Tinseltown, also known as Manitowoc, Wisconsin, from 1959 to 1971. Now you can buy a reproduction, but if you want an original, you might need some help finding a true Evergleam. Theron George is a author of the Evergleam book, 60th Anniversary Deluxe Edition, and all-around expert on ever trees. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, George tells contributor Jennifer Fields that his love for the far-out, shiny, atomic space trees started right here on Earth.
11: We have to go back to my childhood in the 1970s and early 1980s, and my parents, who are deceased, and I say this in the really in a loving way sometimes we're a little bit behind the times at least i felt so as a teenager they still have their original aluminum christmas tree which we have captured in photographs from the 1960s but they still had it in the 1970s and early 80s and then it kind of just disappeared some of my very happiest memories are of that aluminum Christmas tree in my childhood that was probably uh, thrown out with the trash at some point because nobody in my family has it now. I guess the memory and the attempt to recapture my childhood and that nostalgia was really the beginning of the Evergreen book. And then in a second sense, I remember in 2004, when I had already started to rekindle my interest in aluminum Christmas trees, of course, I bought the now very famous book by John Shimon and Julie Lindemann, which is called Seasons Gleamings. It's a pictorial essay, more than a written word essay, about aluminum Christmas trees in portraits. I've actually told John this since we're now friends, but I said I regretted that I didn't. To that book.
5: It's one thing to have a love for these trees and have that pull towards nostalgia, but it's another thing to recreate an entire catalog.
11: As a collector, I admit I look every day on the online auction sites for that gem that I don't yet have in my collection, but in so doing, it amazes me how frequently I come across an advertisement or a listing for an aluminum Christmas tree, which is to no fault of the seller really in error, just completely in error, a complete misrepresentation of what the person is actually selling. That doesn't hurt the seller terribly, but when the buyer receives an object, which was described one way, and they receive something completely different, it's another story. And there certainly is a need for a reference book that, at least insofar as Evergreens is concerned, gives you the tools, gives you the know, gives you the technical language to intelligently discuss, buy, sell, trade, and talk about aluminum Christmas trees.
5: Theron, it's interesting that you to say that because I had to decide who I was as, as somebody who wanted the tree. Am I someone who wanted an actual Evergleam in my home? Or am I someone who just wants a uh, aluminum tree that may or may not be an original, maybe Frankenstein together from a number of parts, could be a retro recreation from some shop somewhere. So I guess... In my mind, it's the condition of the collector. Or you have to decide if you're a collector who wants an authentic tree or if you're a collector who just wants something gleaming and shining in their house.
8: Just this
11: week, here in December of 2020, all historical sales records were broken when an 8-foot-94-branch pink ever Aluminum Christmas tree sold for $5,000 on eBay.
5: You can't see me, but my, my chin is on the floor because I'm not even going to lie right now, Theron If I was going to get one, I want a pink one. <laughs> I want that pink sure, tree. Sure.
11: If the buyer had had the evergreen book, and maybe they do. I don't know who that buyer is, and it doesn't matter, and I hope they'll be very happy with their acquisition, But if they had my book, they would understand that the version of the tree they bought was really a standard pink aluminum Christmas tree as opposed to a deluxe pink aluminum Christmas tree. The difference being that the standard version have the lesser number of branches for a given height, whereas the deluxe version has more branches for a given height. In the case of this pink aluminum Christmas tree, which was eight feet tall, it had 94 branches. That's considered a standard pink aluminum Christmas tree. The holy grail, if you want an eight foot tree, would be item 4918, which would have had 121 or 124 branches. It doesn't matter. The person who bought that tree, I'm sure, is going to be thrilled with what they got. And for sure, they do have a a wonderful prize. But it would be the type of collector or the type of person with keen interest and knowledge who would have understood the difference between the two models and what was actually being sold and bought on eBay this week.
5: Have you found new Evergleam or Evergleam-type products or related products since writing this book?
11: There is an official um, company advertisement back from the 1960s for a tree which is known as the silver spruce. It's unique because it has downward swept branches as opposed to the typical upward swept branches that we're all familiar with. Yet nobody that we know of has one in a private collection anywhere in the world so we have to think if the aluminum specialty company spent enough time and enough money to build at least one of them to have it professionally photographed and then to have their designer place it on a catalog page from the early 1960s where are they where did it go was it a project that got scrapped for one reason or another or is one waiting to be discovered in a basement or forgotten attic somewhere in the upper midwest maybe even close to home in manitowoc wisconsin but the possibility that one is waiting to be discovered makes the collecting so interesting and it just keeps me involved and engaged year-round, hoping that we find the the elusive and the mysterious Silver Spruce.
5: It's such, I don't know, it's such a, a nod to a time period where we, you know, s- stupidly thought we knew everything, but we were exploring space and we were, you know, it was a time of social unrest, of political unrest, But you had this sort of gleaming beacon that came out of it and came out of it from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, of all places. I would not think of, especially now, I would not think of Wisconsin as a beacon for hope in the 60s.
11: As we speak, I'm looking at photographs from my personal collection. On the one hand, I'm looking at a pair of lovely African-American ladies Um, probably in their late teens, early 20s. I purchased this photograph from a family in Detroit. They have an aluminum Christmas tree. But in addition to the aluminum Christmas tree, I'm looking at their clothes. I'm looking at their jewelry. I'm looking at their hair. I'm looking at their furniture, their plants. I'm looking at their drapes. I go to the next photograph, and these are all um, young men from Fort Worth um, there's <laughs> there 's nothing terribly eccentric about them they're they 're from middle class largely white families um, they 've received a gun for Christmas. They have an aluminum Christmas tree in the back, one of them has probably a blazer from some highfalutin private school somewhere and Then I go to the next photograph and I see a child who 's probably seven, eight years old. Of course he has the very finest aluminum Christmas tree in the background with a halo board and a diorama and he's got steeper orb lights. But he's just received an accordion on Christmas morning, which he has strapped on and he's playing it for his mother and father presumably. This would never occur in Texas. But what ties all of these things together Obviously, is the aluminum Christmas tree. Yet, the people who have them come from so very many diverse backgrounds, um, social status. Um, some of them appear to possibly, you know, be lower middle class, maybe not well to do. Um, others appear to be from very affluent families. But it fascinates me how the aluminum Christmas tree transcends all of those things during the Christmas time in the early 1960s. It's absolutely fascinating.
5: For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields.
1: And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast, and Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton.
0: And I'm Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, be sure to subscribe to the local news podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening. Good night.